and I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. So, listen. Listen to what the Lord is saying. He says, stand up. State your case against me. Let the mountains and hills be called to witness your complaints. And now, O mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people. He will bring charges against Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me. For I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed And how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead. And remember your journey from the Acacia Grove to Gilgal? When I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. What can bring you to the Lord And they answered, what can we bring to the Lord? Should we bring him burnt offerings? Should we bow before the God most high with offerings of yearling calves? Should we offer him thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Should we offer our firstborn children to pay for our sins? No. O people, the Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God, the word of the Lord. Thank you, Carrie Jane. Thank you, music team. And good morning. I want to add my welcome to uh, what Diana passed along this morning. My name is Mike Traben. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Fellowship Church. Privileged to serve alongside a diverse group of leaders and staff, gifted, and it's my privilege to be with you today. Children uh, pre-K through fifth grade are dismissed to the meadow, if you desire, with Miss Carrie Jane. Um, and uh, I don't mean to brag, but I heard this morning that I am the number one greatest dad. <laughs> Hands down, according to the poster that I was presented, at least today in my house, in the view of my own children. Uh, On other days, I'm reminded you're old. And from time to time, you yell a lot. I do. But in fairness, it's a loud home. Four children, a dog, two former Marines for parents. We don't run our house like the Marine Corps, I can promise you that. 
Um, but old yeller, that's who I am. I want to pivot for just a moment. And I want to invite each of us to reflect on a, a sensitive but critical question that we need to ask ourselves. How have you and I been affected by things like pride, idolatry, adultery, or injustice? They're strong words. It's not lost on me that many of you, many of us in this room, have been deeply personally affected by the sins of unfaithfulness or injustice or idolatry or pride. But it's also not just as victims, brothers and sisters. We need to ask ourselves also, how have we perpetrated these sins? It's a heavy issue. And as we heard this morning in our call to worship and as Diana led us into confession, we're a people who are prone to sin. You see, our need, friends, is that you and I, we've been taught we have a sin nature, and I think to a large degree that's true, but in the way we were created, we have a human nature. A human nature that participates in sin. And it's a participation that's contrary to the very good that God pronounced over us as those he created in his divine image. We don't like to talk about our sin problem. I don't like to preach about it. (laughs) I'm not wearing my glasses today, so I can't see those of you who may be unhappy with me. But I want to pronounce to you that the, the good news is that the sinlessness of Jesus is greater than the collective sin of all of humankind. And his life story of perfect is obedience is the measure of every human being. It's not what's been done or what you may have experienced in your life. But where someone's been unfaithful to you in all manner of ways. Where somebody has idolized something they shouldn't and it harmed you. Where somebody perpetrated an injustice that affected you, wittingly or unwittingly, perpetrated that injustice. And so we begin this morning a a summer sermon series exploring through the 12 books of the Old Testament we call the Minor Prophets. You may have seen the banner on the side of the, the building And it's one that we've entitled, Live Justly, Love 
mercy. A title inspired by our guiding text this morning from the book of Micah. I'm just going to tell you right now, this is not an expository preaching sermon. I'm not really going to exposit those verses for you. This is the introduction of a series of 12 books of the Bible, and we're going to go through each of them in successive sermons. But I want to take a brief excursus here because we don't spend, well, we haven't recently spent a lot of time in the Old Testament. And as New Testament Christians, we might be tempted to dismiss the Old Testament as, um, you know, that's Old Covenant. That's the history of Israel. I mean, it's mildly interesting, but I'm a New Covenant Christian. But we need to be reminded that the story of Israel is very much a part of the story of all of us. It's the revelation of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is useful to you and me. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's a revelation of who God is and who his people are prone to be. Yes, Old Testament Israel, but you and me. Because like them, friends... We are prone to all of the things that God constantly reminded Old Testament Israel of in regard to their covenant unfaithfulness and his covenant faithfulness. You see, the good news that we believe, the good news that we proclaim, our gospel needs the Old Testament. The entire story of the Bible from creation to the consummation of the story of Israel and the story of Jesus as the resolution of Israel's history, we're participants in that story. So let me come back to the prophets here. Within the Christian Bible, there are two sections of 17 books that we designate as prophets. The first five, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, we call them the major prophets because of their size. The 12 smaller books that we're focusing on in our series this morning, we refer to as the minor prophets. It's an unfortunate term because they are termed minor because of their relative length to the other books, not because they lack any sort of theological richness or depth. And so we want to look at what do they have to say to us? How do you and I relate to the prophets? If you aren't familiar with where to find it in your Bible even, and I don't say this pejoratively, but just it's literally the 12 books that precede the New Testament. And I hope we all spend time in them over the next 12 weeks. How do you and I relate to them, though? It's full of this cosmic imagery in Hebrew poetry, things that you and I aren't necessarily familiar with. Who were the prophets? What function did they perform? And what... Do the prophets, specifically the minor prophets, have to say to us as new covenant Christians? That's the question that we're hoping to begin to explore and uncover over the next 12 weeks. And I'm just going to introduce these prophets to you this morning. So we're going to take this broad look at these 12 books. Who were the prophets and what period of of history did they speak? Because I think that's important to understanding their message When were they speaking? What was going on in the world? Who were they talking to? What needs were they addressing and what truths were they proclaiming? Well, a prophet is uh, 
the gift of prophecy is for the New Testament church. In our church, and maybe even in our culture here in Texas, you don't get a lot of people that I encounter running around saying, well, I have the gift of prophecy. Um, most of the time when I encountered that in my life in other churches, um, the old yeller in me thought, oh, okay, really? A bit skeptical. But prophets in the Old Testament were ones who received direct revelation from the Lord. You and I might be prone to think of them as fortune tellers, but they were not. God specifically prohibited that sort of activity. Seeking diviners or participating in seances or trying to speak with the dead, predicting the future. God called that an abomination. These were men and women that we find in the scriptures who had a radical encounter with God's presence and they were commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. We find in the Old Testament uh, over 300 mentions of the word prophet and prophetess. And in the New Testament, over 125 occurrences. It's, in some sense, an office. These men and women commissioned by God to proclaim a message. The official institution of the office of prophet was something that took place in Moses' day. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where after God had warned Israel about getting or attempting to get supernatural information through bogus pagan sources, he announced to Israel that he would raise up for them a prophet like Moses from among their own brothers. That he would put words into this prophet's mouth and the prophet would tell the people everything that God had commanded him. And this prophet that God was alluding to, ultimately, was the greater Moses, Jesus. But God, in revealing himself to his people, spoke through the Old Testament prophets. Now, it's sometimes said that prophets are not foretellers, that is, those who tell the future, but forthtellers, those who proclaim something. Foretelling in the Bible context is, is predicting what God would do. And prophets, when they engaged in foretelling, predicting the future, did so under the inspiration of God. Forthtelling is a, decla- a declaration of the truth about God. It's setting truth, justice, mercy, and the righteousness of God against every form of denial of these same things. One Commentator says it this way, he says, to speak prophetically was to speak boldly against every form of moral, ethical, political, economic, and religious disenfranchisement observed in a culture that was intent on building its own pyramid of values vis-a-vis God's established system of truth and ethics. The Old Testament prophets engage in both forthtelling and foretelling. They're forthtellers by foretelling. They spoke to present sins and called for present actions. And they dramatized the character of God as few other books do. And I invite you as you begin to read these portions of the scriptures to be looking for these things, to be looking for the God that they're describing. The minor prophets emphasize three basic attributes of God's character. 
And again, I, I invite you as you read to, to look for these things. First, they, they highlight God's sovereignty. Nothing is, is more central to the thinking of these 12 writers than the fact that God is the sovereign Lord of history. And that nothing happens, either the Israel or the Gentile nations of that era or today, that is not the result of God's direct determination. So God's sovereignty is a major theme, and, or attribute rather, that they, they highlight. The second great attribute that we see in the minor prophets is holiness. Both of God and God's demand for our own personal holiness. Holiness was the driving force behind these sharp denunciations of sin that the prophets foretold. Nowhere in the Bible are there more stiff denunciations of sins and heartier calls for deep repentance than you'll find in the minor prophets. And then lastly, the prophets speak of God's love. Love, friends, is who God is. It is the essence of who God is. And love is not incompatible with justice. On the contrary, it's because of God's great love for his people, even his love for you and I, non-Israelites, that he sends the prophets with messages of judgment, with calls for repentance. And for those who didn't heed the call, he sent judgment itself. Well, because God is sovereign, holy, and love, his primary concern that he's communicating through the prophets is covenant faithfulness. You see, God had brought the Israelites out of bondage from Egypt, and he gave them an identity at Mount Sinai. He said, you are, I am your God, you are my people, do these things. This is what will separate you from those who are not my people. It's a mutual partnership between God and his people. And the prophet's role is to remind us and Israel of our role in the partnership. Well, let me turn now to the historical setting. Those are three broad character attributes of God that you'll see throughout these books. But the historical setting in which they wrote is an important contextual clue to understand what they're saying and why and to whom they're saying it too. Now, these 12 prophetic books come from four different periods of time in Israel's history that span from the 9th century B.C. to the 5th century B.C. In the days when the Davidic kingdom had split into two, into a northern kingdom called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. The earliest of the minor prophets, Obadiah, Joel, and Jonah appeared in the late 9th and early 8th centuries. It's a period prior to the rise of the Assyrian Empire, which would ultimately carry much of Israel off into exile and bondage. The second group of prophets, Amos, Hosea, and Micah, come from the 8th century, a period when the Assyrian armies were, were dominating the scene in the ancient Near East. And then this third set, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, they come from the 7th century, where we now see the power of the Babylonian Empire beginning to eclipse that of Assyria. 
And then the last three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, they come from the period after the exile, when Judah was a province of the Persian Empire. Four groupings, each speaking into a different period of Israel's history. Now, biographically, very little is known about the 12 minor prophets. Five of them in the scriptures reveal the names of their father. That's a bit of a clue. Three of the minor prophets are mentioned in the other historical books of the Old Testament, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel. Three of the prophets mention their hometowns, but relatively little is known about these men in this case because we're talking about God and who he is, his relationship with his people. It's a collection concerning the testimony of God's kingdom at the time and the future prophetic word to ancient Israel. Their warnings to the northern and southern kingdom that they would fall to foreign powers, their calls for repentance, and their the final touches applied to a messianic portrait, which we see all throughout Scripture, because all of prophecy points to Jesus, the greater Moses, the greatest prophet of God. Well, I want to zoom back out for a moment and recognize that the the prophets are really preaching two broad truths, okay? It's a call to covenant faithfulness. It's a reminder of God's character and his promises, but it's also a warning that a divided kingdom in God's economy cannot stand. And that God would ultimately establish a new kingdom of a different kind. One that wasn't just for Israel, but was for all people. And that the head of that kingdom would be this glorious king, priest, and prophet. Who from the dawn of human history, all the way back in Genesis 3, had been promised to the human family. And so history becomes an important interpreter of prophecy. As Jesus was celebrating with his disciples the Passover in the upper room the night before his crucifixion, he reminds them, as we read in John 14, he says, I told all of this to you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. Well, each book of the minor prophets has a major theme and a messianic portrait. And again, I want to invite you to look for those. Three major themes unify all of these books. Violations of the terms of the covenant. Again, covenant faithfulness. God is reminding Israel through the prophets that they have not upheld their end of the relationship. There are calls to repentance because God desires mercy over judgment. And then, of course, there's an announcement of the consequences or the judgment for those who would not heed what the prophet was saying. So a little more focus into these chronological divisions and and what these prophets are saying. So the earlier writings of the 8th century prophets, Hosea, Amos, and Micah, we see the Lord emphasizing his covenant relationship with the people of Israel. The prophets are accusing God's people of violating their obligations to the Mosaic Covenant and warn that judgment was impending. But yet, as this who our God is 
Despite painting such a bleak picture of the immediate future and the consequences, God always holds out hope. And so these prophets also held out this hope for a future at the end of this dark period of punishment and exile. Hosea was focused on the northern kingdom, talking about people's idolatrous unfaithfulness to their covenant Lord, which he likened to adultery. Amos also addressed the northern kingdom, focusing on a different aspect of the people's failure, social injustice. And in this book, we see that the God's relationship, not just to the people of Israel, but to the people of the world, the nations, growing in prominence as well. Now, Micah differs from Hosea and Amos and that his primary focus was on the southern kingdom of Judah and the future role of the Davidic dynasty in its capital city of Jerusalem. So these 8th century prophets primarily focusing on the people of God's violating their obligation to God in this covenant relationship and calling them back to covenant faithfulness. The 7th century minor prophets focused on the justice of God as exhibited in a powerful judgment on an international scale. Nahum announced Assyria's well-deserved judgment, which would bring relief to God's people and to all who suffered at the hands of their ruthless oppressors. The dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord focused on the issue of justice. God's solution to the problem of injustice in the southern kingdom of Judah was to summon the Babylonians as his instrument of punishment. However, he assured Habakkuk that he would also eventually judge Babylon for its crimes and protect and ultimately vindicate his loyal followers. In the 6th and 5th century minor prophets, they addressed concerns and issues arising out of the Israelites' experiences in exile and return to the land. Was God really sovereign over the affairs of men and nations? Would the nations be repaid for their mistreatment of God's people? Had God severed his covenant relationship with the people of Israel? Would the promises that God made to the fathers, to Abraham, which formed the basis of the visions for the earlier prophets, would those be fulfilled? Joel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi addressed the post-exilic community, each making clear that this community was the successor to the pre-exilic community. And that they too were responsible to obey God's covenant demands. And that they would receive the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience that had always been laid out by God to Old Testament Israel. Last but not least, we have the prophet Jonah. He's a bit of an outlier He's a favorite of the other pastor, Mike, at this church. Um, Jonah differs from the other books of the Minor Prophets in that um, it's a more of a biographical account of his experiences rather than a collection of prophetic messages. Ironically, in this book, it's everybody but the prophet who are faithful. 
But there's a lot of theological lessons to be learned there. And I know that uh, Mike Srow, who's very passionate about this book, has a lot to illuminate there. Well, how then, brothers and sisters, are we to respond? This is a big, you know, 30,000-foot, fast-moving overview of the 12 minor prophets. How, how How are we to respond? Well, as I started with this question inviting us each to self-reflection, it's, it's a reminder that we need these emphases today. These prophets are not just for the time in which they wrote. They're for you and I today. We need them as individuals. We need them as a church. Because just like Israel, we sin. We run from God. We lose trust in God. We doubt who God says he is. And so God is constantly reminding us of his covenant faithfulness, of his good character, of his nature. And we need them as a nation, for God will not deal with America or any other contemporary nation any differently in regard to its sin than he dealt with the nations of antiquity. We need to learn and we need to change deeply. And these books can help us on that journey. As I was preparing for the sermon, I was struck by something that Jesus said in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 22. He's approached by a young lawyer. Now, the Pharisees have been trying to trick Jesus in in this passage of Scripture that we're reading here. And so their motives aren't really noble in any way. But this young lawyer asked Jesus, he says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus says to him, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. It's a reminder to this Hebrew lawyer, a teacher of the Mosaic law, something he was intimately familiar with, a prayer he prayed every day, a prayer that was nailed to the doorpost of his house. Jesus says this is the great and first commandment. And then he says the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But what stands out to me is what he says at the end. He says on these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. You see, friends, the prophets have something to say to us today because they say everything that God has to say to you and I about who he is, about what he desires of our covenant faithfulness, of how he will never leave or forsake you and I. He will never fail us on his end of the partnership. And then... Coming right off of this series in Philippians, which we just ended, I was drawn to this verse that Paul, stating to the Ephesian church, he says, um, he reminds us and the church that he says, we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone. Friends, the prophets are foundational to our faith. 
So I invite you to dig deeper. Three practices I want to invite each of us to engage in this week. I'm learning as I continue to grow in my own walk with Christ that it's, it has to move beyond intellectually thinking about things and appropriating things. It has to move into actual practices. And so first is to read. Draw closer to God by reading the Minor Prophets. Next week, we're going to talk about Hosea. So I hope that that would guide your Bible reading this week. God reveals himself to us through his word. God engages in relationship with us through his word. Reading the scriptures is one of the most profitable things you and I can engage in, in our quest, our desire to be spiritually transformed, to be faithful followers of Christ. So read. Second is to pray. To draw closer to God through prayer. And not just prayer in that time of day where you sit down and you pull out your list and you engage in the things that guide your prayer life, which are all great things. But I want to invite you not only to communicate God to God and with God, but to engage with him with your consciousness, that throughout the day to be mindful that God is present, that he is present in all of creation, and that as you are mindful of God, that in some way you're engaging in communion with him through prayer in this way. So pray by communicating and being conscious of God. And then lastly is to walk, to draw closer to God and walk humbly in the spirit by laying down your life in the service of others. It's, it's why we picked this verse that is the inspiration for the title of our series. It's the passage that you heard this morning. What does God require of us, brothers and sisters? To love mercy. And to do justice. And to walk in the Holy Spirit humbly. With our God. I want to end with a quote from a pastor who, from time to time, I, I read his thoughts. He says, Ancestral sin is real. We see its effects everywhere. We are sinners. As we confess every week in our liturgy, as we, brothers and sisters, confess this morning in our sanctuary. Sin is a power that afflicts us, no doubt. But it's also important to understand that we are not our sins. They do not define the human person. What defines you and I is the human God, Jesus. While it's evident that the sin of our ancestor Adam has wide-reaching destructive consequences in everyone everywhere, Christians are the one who trust that the obedience of the human God is greater. The effects of his good humanity will override every evil in us and in creation. And this changes the way that we look at everyone. Jesus is the lens through which we view and interact with every human. And my friends, the prophets are a lens into the character and the person of Jesus Christ. And so I say to you and to me, live justly and love mercy. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we just give you such tremendous gratitude that we as 
Christians in this era of human history have the privilege of reading your scriptures, that we have the words of the apostles and the prophets on whom we lay the foundation of our faith, the greatest prophet being Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that through the reading of this word and by engaging with you in prayer and by centering all of our consciousness on who you are and what you have done for us through and in your Son and what you are doing in us today by the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that we would be transformed, that we would see ourselves more clearly and that we would grow in our capacity to love mercy and to do justice and to walk humbly with our God. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us by your Spirit to grow deeper into our walk in covenant faithfulness if you have so steadfastly been faithful to us. And we pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.